lessons tonight, if you will. Um, we get to um, hopefully get through two chapters tonight of um, really some foundational um, uh, section of the Word of God where David sins with Bathsheba and, and then repents and the prophet Nathan comes to him and um, so, some, some very uh, important and uh, key bi- biblical passages into the heart and life of David. Now, as we know, as we get into the study of the life of David, one of the things that, um, you know, that David becomes an anomaly in the scriptures, in a sense, in a sense, because follow me, he, he's a man who has some of the highest praise from God in the whole Bible. I mean, God says of King David that he's a man after my own heart. There's really not a better compliment that God could put over somebody's life. But anybody in here um, accept it? Would you take it? Would you say, hey, cool, yeah. If God wanted to say of you and of your life that you're a man, a woman after God's own heart? Yes? Would you guys take that? Would you receive that? Yeah? This is Pat. He's a man after my own heart. God came down and said that of any of us, right? Like, there's really no better compliment that God could give. I mean, a man after God's own heart, a God of a God of love and a God of compassion and sacrifice and mercy and grace and power. And David is a man after my own heart. You know, not only that, but God so loved King David that that last chapter, remember our last section we were reading, David said, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build a temple, a church for you, because you're still, de- you're still living and dwelling in the tent that Moses built. But I want to come and I want to build you a house. And God said, David, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And, and I'm going to bring my son, the Messiah, and he's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And that, that God is going to send his son, Jesus, through your line, David. And, I'm, and, and never will one cease to sit on the throne of David king in Israel and of Israel and and these high 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 praises of King David we get to the New Testament and um, nothing but praise and adoration from the from the epistle writers and from the 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 letters to the New Testament about King David and yet when you get into the life of King David you find something that doesn't make sense you know I don't even like bringing this up it's so bad but, you know, David, in a season in his life, just before he was crowned king, they were hiding down in Philistine country in a place called Ziklag. And to make a living, they were raiding um, Philistine villages, and they had to kill everyone in the village so that no survivors could go back and tell the king of Ziklag what David was doing. Da- David, in what we're going to see here, has a huge moral failure in his life. One of the things that the Bible says about King David or about the kings in Israel, is they weren't supposed to do several things. God made several restrictions upon the kings of Israel. And one of them was that they were not to multiply wives unto themselves. And David began the practice of multiplying wives unto himself. And, and on and on and on. But what, what we find now, now and, and David again, David is such a fascinating character, right? Because one of the things that I that I I love about King David is that King David can absolutely relate to everybody in this room. Because he was not only he 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 was the best at all these things. But, you know, oftentimes like right in school, let's take a stereotype in a high school or a school or anywhere. You know, we had when I was in school, it was like the jocks and then like the whatever, you know, the 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 smart kids or the nerds or the whatever the you know, but 
are the musicians, which were still cool kids, right, or whatever, but they're musicians and jocks. But those two weren't like, you know, and, and but David, he was a warrior. He was a man's man. The guy was a soldier. He was a rough guy. He would be a jock type. And then he was also the, the world's greatest musician. And he was a poet. He liked poetry. Imagine a jock who loved poetry. And not only did he love it, he was super good at it. He, 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 he was the most talented musician in all of Israel. When the king before him had a distressing spirit that would come upon him, the king said to one of his servants, find me a, a, a talented musician in, in Israel who will come and play for me when this um, distressing spirit comes upon me. And the first guy, first name, and it, it was still obviously not, you know, we don't believe in coincidences, but at the same time, the, the name the guy thought of was King David or was little boy David, shepherd boy David at the time, who, who, who could skillfully play instruments. David writes 150 psalms. I don't know the number, but David writes the majority of the psalms. And, and, and in the psalms, David was, um, in history, David was the most articulate person that ever lived in human history. The way that, that David could experience God and, and articulate that into words was, was only by the Holy Spirit. It was super phenomenal. You know, David said things like in Psalms 42, as the deer pants for water, oh, doth my soul pant for thee, Lord. And just this desire in his heart for God. And yet, he's a murderer. We're going to see here, and it's just in this one chapter. He's, he's, he's going to murder a guy. And, and, and the residual deaths on top of that, he's going to lie. He's going he's gonna to deceive. He's going to commit adultery. He's going to pretend to be holier than he is. And then when he gets caught, what, what we find about God through the life of King David is that King David has a heart that's broken. And he's sorry, and he repents, and he shows us what true biblical repentance is. And what we, what we learn in a nutshell in the life of David is that, listen, this is, this is the key. God is more in, um, impressed. God is more desired of your heart than your actions. Now, again, you, you, you can't excuse bad behavior and bad actions and say, oh, well, I'm a good person. I have a good heart. That's not, the, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God, and the Bible says this in, in as many words, that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And even though David was a man who had sinned, he was a man that God, when God looked upon his heart, David desired God. David was fully surrendered to God in his life. He wanted all that God had for him. He loved God. He desired God. And there's no question that King David was a man of devotion who spent lots of time personally and intimately with God because you don't have that depth of character and articulation and relationship as David expressed in the Psalms if you don't know God personally, if you don't spend time hearing the voice of God and knowing the will of God and, and being intimate with God. He was intimate with God through music and through serving and through worship and through poetry and through writing and, um, and, and, and doing. And so David is, you know, the, the, the lots and lots and lots of lessons. But, but the, the, the key lesson in David's life is, is David teaches us, I'm going to read him tonight, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, the heart of, of a man who, who has a heart after God. You know, my personal testimony was that, you know, when, you know, when, when I was young, um, I, I, I had no God in my house. My mom had eight kids. My dad died when I was a year old. My mom was pregnant with my little sister, and we grew up. My mom was an amazing person. She worked hard. She worked full time to provide for us. She never had boyfriends coming in and out of the house. She she just put us first. 
and and you know and but but we grew up somewhat latchkey because my mom worked to provide and um and and we ran the streets and with no god in our house and my life was a complete upside down mess at 20 years old when i became a christian and and i became a christian i asked jesus in my heart at 20 years old and i was addicted to drugs and lots of other baggage in my life at the time and um for the next six months i struggled i struggled with some sins of my past and I knew that God, I know the night that I asked Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior, that God absolutely delivered me from those sins. But I didn't walk in that deliverance right away. But I went through a period, I went through a season where my heart was crying out to God. And there was times where um, I, was, I was doing some things that I used to do, that, I, that God was changing in my life. And I really was literally, my heart was saying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, help me. God, I want to change. God, why am I struggling this way? And, and even though my heart was even though my, my actions were sin and terrible, it, it really wasn't reflection on my heart. You know, there was times where I, I fought in the spirit and, and I didn't know nothing about God. And I nothing about, you know, just brand new to church and God or any experience with these kind of things. And, you know, there was times where I remember shaking my fist one time, you know, it was in tears. And I was saying, God, God, I want to change. God, help me. And, you know, and, and my heart was begging God to deliver me from this bondage of drugs that I was in. And this lifestyle that, you know, I, saw, I, I found my brother overdosing from heroin in, in the alley two blocks, you know, half, half, half a block from my house. And, and as a young man, as a young man, 10, 11, 12 years old, I remember how old I was, was, I was young. And I found him. We called 911. The ambulance came and he survived. But that, the impression that it made on me was I don't want to grow up that way. I don't want that to be me. And then, and then when I was 20 years old and I was fast approaching that lifestyle, I can remember wanting out and wanting, and, 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 and I always told myself growing up, you know, and even though, you know, I had no real parameters, I was always the last one of my friends that got involved in whatever we were doing on the streets. I always, nah, 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 I tried to not do it. I wasn't a, you know, I lived in a kind of a violent environment. I wasn't a violent person. I didn't like it. You know, I was always trying to make peace and, you know, and I had, I, I had a desire but I had no power to overcome the, the life that, that, that was inevitable. And then eventually, as, as I started getting caught up into it, I was trying to stop. I was trying to change. I was trying to get right. And I, and I couldn't. I couldn't get off the drugs. I couldn't stop. I was, and it was scaring me. And I didn't want to. And every, every more, you know, the, the deeper you get, the worse it gets. And the more scantless things you have to do to, get, to, to do what you want to do and to stay high. And, um, and then when I asked Jesus in my heart, like I said, I know he delivered me that night, but, it, but I struggled. I went through a period of about six months. And then by the grace of God, my, my, what happened to me was I just had to get out of L.A. I had to get out of the situation I was in, the house I was living in, the, the friends, the neighborhood. And, and so I moved to Hemet um, with a friend of mine who I grew up with, who, who became a Christian about a year before I did, was praying for me during that season. And, and, and again, by the, by the moving of God, he was just happened to be calling me and reaching out to me and gave his life to Jesus a year before I did. Well, I went and moved in with him and I was got involved in a church there in, in Hemet and I was living with him and his family at the time. And then him and I, Jason and I got our own apartment after uh, I got there and got a job, got on my feet. And, and, and I was going through a season where I was um, I was doing well in, in chunks and I was growing. I was going to church and, you know, hands raised in church on Sunday. And, and it, but it wasn't phony. It was real. My heart was real to, to desire God. And then you know, by Thursday or if I had a weekend off or a long weekend, I'd get in my car and I'd drive back to L.A. And it was like I never left. I went right back to the old places and the old spots and did the old stuff. 
and, 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 and struggle. But even in that, as, as I was coming home or getting back now Sunday, usually Sunday I was heading back, and, and I would repent. And, and it was real repentance. I wasn't sorry I got caught. I wasn't sorry. I was broken for what I was doing. I was broken for going back to my vomit when, when I wanted God to change my life. And I was saying, God, forgive me. God, change me. God, help me. Why did I make that decision? Why did I go back? Why did I do those things? God, help me. God, help me. And even though I was sinning on the outside and I was struggling, God was honoring me. But, but God wasn't honoring those actions. But God was honoring a heart that wanted um, him. And, and that's, that's what we see in the life of David. You know, during that season, what really solidified um, my deliverance and, and my decision to walk with God was during that season, I had it in my mind that God needed to punish me for those sins so that I could feel better about myself, so that he could, um, you know, so that if he dealt with me and he disciplined me, then I would, I would, feel, I would feel okay. And so I would say, okay, God, like, I, do something really bad to me so we can be even, you know. And, and I kind of had the idea that, you know, maybe my dog would die, and then God and I would be even. Or, you know, our, our apartment was upstairs, and I had to walk up steps. And I was thinking, okay, I'll walk up the steps to my apartment, and I'll break my ankle, and then we'll be even. And, and every time I expected and I, and I, and I needed God to, to discipline me so that, you know, I could, I could feel my conscience could feel a little bit better, God, God said to me through that season, in every one of those moments of my worst, of being a hypocrite in my actions, but I wasn't a hypocrite in my heart, but a hypocrite in my actions, and, and I'd say, okay, God, do something terrible. And God would say, I love you. <laughs> I love you. And, and oh my gosh, the feeling that, that 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 was so hard to receive. I was so radical of all the things, God, of all the things right now. And you, you, I can't hide who I am. You know who I am. And I'm not a good person. And I'm struggling. And you know that I was in church on Sunday around a bunch of Christians acting like a Christian. And on Saturday I was in a place I shouldn't have been doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And, and what you want to say to me today is you love me? And it just, it just rocked me to the core. Like how? And the love of God absolutely changed my life during that season. What was kind of cool, and I'll get on with, with this, you guys, but <laughs> what was cool was, um, you know, some, some of the experiences in church, um, they can feel manufactured or phony or fake or, or you're not really sure. But some of the things that happened in those six months, nine months that I was going through this process of coming out of the world and, and becoming a Christian, um, but I received, um, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit alone in my room in that apartment in Hammett, and I began to speak in tongues, and um, the the things that God did, you know, I'm thankful now that it, it wasn't later, you know, at some church service with some pastor shaking me and trying to teach me how to speak in tongues, you know, because if I did, I'd be like, is that real, or did that was that of God? But the way it happened, you know, there's no doubt in my mind and my life that it was of God because it was real and it was genuine. And, and it was in those seasons. Then I started going through a season in that time where God was getting me up every morning, like 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. And it was like I had this alarm that would go off. And it was the Holy Spirit waking me up to spend time with him. And I began to spend time with God. I was spending time. I was reading the Bible, like huge chunks of the Bible. I had a big journal. I was writing in my journal. And I was going through that season. And, and even in that, as I was spending time with God, God was getting me up in the morning. God, God's Holy Spirit was speaking to me, and I could hear him. 
I could hear him say, I love you and other things. And the voice of God was becoming clear in my life. And, um, and, and then again, even, you know, as that season was going on and there'd be like that, 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 that sin or that fall or that trip back to LA and then coming home and trying to get back to what God was doing. And, and my heart was crying out the whole season. God, I want to change. God, I don't want to be found in an alley overdosing on heroin. And, and God honored my heart. I was a um, elementary school principal, um, vice principal, actually the dean of students was one of my responsibilities at Joshua Springs in the K through 12 school. And, um, you know, so I dealt with primarily with elementary school discipline, which was, you know, never anything major. But, you know, but as as a as a pastor, it was a good role for me because a lot of the a lot of the kids that I that I counseled and dealt with and. Um, the kids were easy to deal with. It was the parents that I had to call after the situation that was impossible to deal with. But the, you know, I, it was always the same thing. It was always the same concept. You know, we, we could have two kids that did the same exact thing on campus. You know, we had some kids throwing rocks and, and they broke a couple of windows in a classroom. And so I have the kids in the office and I'm talking to them. And the one kid is so broken. His heart is broken. He's, he's embarrassed. He's, um, you know, he's, he's asking for forgiveness and he's sorry. And, you know, that he wants to pay for the windows and, you know, he doesn't know why he did it. He doesn't want to do it anymore. And, you know, and so broken. And then the other kid is like, what's the big deal? I didn't mean to break the window. I threw a rock. Kids throw rocks. Same action. But I, but I, but I dealt with situation totally different based on the, on the what? On the heart, right? Because the one kid, he got it already. There was nothing more I needed to tell him or, you know, I didn't need to discipline him or come down on him. He was broken. He was he had he had arrived already where I wanted him to arrive. But the other young man, you know, I wanted him to pay for all the windows, even the ones the other kid broke, you know, and it was like because his 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 heart was in a was in a wrong place and, and that's that's the way God's gonna deal with us, you know. And sometimes, you know, it feels like an injustice in, in God's kingdom or, you know, as we look around and we maybe see some other people that you feel like are 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 not doing it right, but God's blessing their lives. And God's, God's, God's hand of protection and blessing seems to be over them. And, you know, but what God's looking at is not, not always the action. It's the heart. It's always the heart. And again, you know, last little kind of, um, uh, you know, I'm not excusing bad actions with a good heart. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what happened in my life was, was eventually God completely delivered me from, from those things. And, and, and then I, w- I started going through huge, huge sections until they went away. And I think, I don't know, I kind of, so what I, what I personally did was just, you know, I knew I, I, knew I wasn't strong enough to, to go anywhere near L.A., even my family, um, my old friends, that, so I didn't do it. And, and I even hurt some feelings in those seasons. You know, I had some people that loved me and I loved them and they didn't understand it. And they didn't know Jesus and they, they felt kind of betrayed by me and I just wouldn't go around anymore. But I couldn't. And it took me a long time. It took me years. Years and years and years where I just stayed away, completely stayed away. And then I got to a point in my life, season in my life, where, you know, that was far enough behind me that I, I could go back and in and, and, and little chunks, you know, see some old friends and some people and visit some of those places. So um, so that, that wasn't just completely a, a rabbit trail and, and off the cuff, but it, it was about where we are in the scriptures today about King David. So let's look at Second um, Samuel chapter 11. <coughs> And it says, it happened in the spring of the year 
at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh, first problem. So it's kind of a funny line that it happened at the time when the kings go out to battle. It's like, you know, always, you know, it's time to watch football it's springtime it's 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 winter time it's summertime oh it's time to go go out to battle like there was a season we have different seasons well they had literally a season when the different countries and and factions would would war and it was like okay you know it's 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 winter it's snowing outside let's let's not kill each other today let's wait until april and then when the springtime came and the season was good um the kings would go out to battle was David a man of war? Was he experienced in battle? Did he attend many, many battles in his life? Yes, he did. He was a man of war. And, and now he's about 50 years old, and things are good. For the first time, David has solidified the kingdoms. He has the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel under his control. He's leading the nation of Israel. Things are good all around. He's gaining wealth. He, he, you know, he has Jerusalem. The city is being built. Um, everything is going really well. David has wives, he has kids, he's growing. And so late in life, when it's time to, he feels like, I've earned it, I've deserved it, it's time to relax, it's time to put it in cruise control. And, and, you know, you never want to do that. You know, even in what life we talk about as Christians, we want to finish well. That that serving God is, is a marathon. And you know what the reality is? A lot of the pastors... A lot of the leaders in the church who end up falling into some kind of moral sin or, you know, usually the demographic is that it happens more than not. I think like 75% of the time later in life, in the last third of, the, of, of, your, of their lives, which is crazy, but that's what happens. You know, even, even where my dad is, it's, you know, the, the church is very successful and it's very, um, it's, it's huge and it's kind of like he's arrived. Everything's good all around as far as the ministry is concerned and you know, so and what you see, you know, there's there's lots of pastors now that are around, lots of people that can do, um, can teach, can can cover the responsibility, and so you see a lot of ministry leaders and a lot of pastors who worked very hard, you know, very hard for many years building the ministry and 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 serving the church, and then when things really start to go well and um, lots of people around you and things going well that they 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 put it in cruise control or they take a seat back a little bit, and I praise God that you know Dad's not. Um, you know, he, he's 64 and, um, you know, he's going as hard as he ever was. And and he, and he just said, I'm never going to retire. I'm never going to slow down because that's when you get in trouble and we're going to continue to take these mountains and, you know, and I want all that God has for me. And he's doing more today than he's ever done. He's staying busy and working hard and not wanting to, you know, put it in cruise control. But that's what happened with David. He said, you know, my men can fight this fight. They'll be fine without me. I've trained them. We've done war together so long. So David decides in this season of his life to, to kick back, which is a huge mistake. And then it says, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw, somebody say saw, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Somebody said beautiful. You guys want to say beautiful? Beautiful. Beautiful. To behold. So the woman's name was, we're going to find out, is it, is it funny, is it just ironic that the woman taking a bath on the, on the roof was called Bathsheba? But Bathsheba's on the roof. Now, one of, the, one of my favorite things, nah, I don't know if I want to say that. One, one of the cool things to do in Israel when you go um, is 
to stand in this place where David was. So you go to you go to uh, to David's palace, and there's a little balcony there over the movie theater, and so you walk up on top of the balcony, and you're standing in the place that David would have been standing this day, and and it just gives so much perspective to this picture and this and this scene because it, it, for us in Western culture, right, United States, it doesn't make sense how David went outside and seen a woman bathing on a roof. Now, as we know, there in, in Jerusalem to this day, there's no there's no yards. Like we all have front yards, right? We all have backyards. I have a jacuzzi in my backyard, and so oftentimes I'll go out and get in the jacuzzi, and um, you know it's got fences, and people aren't going to see me in the jacuzzi taking a bath or whatever I do in there. But um, don't 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 get it twisted. I pray in the jacuzzi. That's what I do in the jacuzzi. I spend time with God, with bubbles and God. Um, but it's a matter of what I'm wearing when I'm in the jacuzzi. That so, but for for David and, and there, they don't have yards. So everything's on the roof. So your your, your garden's on the roof. You even see this somewhere in third in like South America, Brazil. A lot of these countries are this way, where everything that's that's done outside is done on the roof. So, so the, the, the jacuzzi, the outdoor bath, it's on the roof. And then um, it's right on the edge of, the, of, the, of Mount Moriah where David's palace would be. So to David's left would be where the future um, Solomon's temple would be built, where the Dome of the Rock sits today. Right. So if I'm standing in David's place, to the left is the Dome of the Rock. I'm looking at the Mount of Olives. I'm looking at the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would pray, the Kidron Valley. And then over to my right is just houses lining both sides of the hill. And because it's in a, in a hill, David could very easily have seen the rooftops of all the houses around him. And so it says it's in the evening, and he wakes up off of his bed, and he goes up on the roof, and he looks out, and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. Now, at this point, everybody wants to try to decide who's at fault here, because they're going to end up in an adulterous relationship. So was Bathsheba guilty of... Um, baiting David. Did she know the king would be out there? And so she put herself on display. Um, I'm not going to get into it. I don't know the heart of Bathsheba and, and, and it, whether she was trying to bait the king, if she knew that that was going on, if she was innocent, if you know it was dark. It says it was in the evening, so it's possible it was dark outside. I don't know how well David could have actually seen you know, her. I'm sure he, he saw it. It wasn't like the middle of the day, so whether his visibility was great or, or low, but David is there, and he sees Bathsheba. Now, um, there's two words here for the way that David saw Bathsheba. Verse 2, this is for you men. It says, and from the roof, he, verse 2, he saw a woman bathing. Now, Jesus said that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart already. So, men, we know that, that to lust for a woman, to see a woman, and, and to stare at her and lust for her is sin. And Jesus said, don't do it. He said, if you, if you do it, that you, you've committed adultery with her in your heart already. And so as men, it's something that we have to be on our guard for. It's one of the big struggles that we have as men, and it's, it's legitimate. And we all face it, we all struggle with it, and we all have to try to do our best to be on guard for it. And so this, um, you know, Job, who, you know, they, they say that Job was the oldest, oldest book in the Bible, he, he, that it was even before Moses wrote um, Moses wrote the the um, Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But Job struggled with looking at women lustfully, and he would see women, and they would be attractive, and he would stare at them, 
And so Job, the oldest book in the Bible, same problem is not new. It's, it's, it's the oldest problem in human history. And Job says, in dealing with it in his own heart, Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a woman. And so, men, that's something if it was good enough for Job. It's, it's a start, right? Make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look lustfully upon a woman. Now, this first word here, when David saw Bathsheba, it's not sin. We all see, we notice, right? You're in the grocery store, you're in Walmart, you're driving in your car, you're, you're at the beach, and, and, and a woman comes into your frame. That's not your fault. It happens. It's a glance, or you notice, I mean, her, and you see her. That's the first thing that happened to David. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's not sinful. You know, if I'm driving in my car and I look over to my right and I see a woman that's very attractive, that's, 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 that's not sin. But if I turn back during the whole red light and I'm like trying to get up so I can see her, you know, now that's a different type of glance. That's a different type of situation that the Bible describes as, as sin. And so, um, it's, it's the, it's the second look that gets you in trouble. It's the staring, it's the glaring, it's the, it's the second look where lust begins to form in your heart that, that God wants you to deal with. Now, listen, God doesn't, you know, God, God created, um, you know, because men will say, oh, it's just God's creation. And, you know, I'm just checking out God's beauty and creation. And, you know, and, and, and God is not um, pr- prohibiting these things because he just doesn't want you to enjoy life or because he's a he's a he's a killjoy. It's for you. It's for your good. It doesn't fulfill. It doesn't bring satisfaction in your life. It, it, it makes um, whoever your situation is, you know, you always feel like the grass is greener on the other side. And what it does in your heart is destructive for you. And it doesn't fulfill. And God wants to protect you from that as your children. And so that's why God prohibits it. He prohibits it because it, it's going to create an emptiness in your life. It's going to create an emptiness in your heart. And it's going to lead to further and further um, um, sins to try to fill that that gap that you're trying to fill that these glances, these looks, these stares, these things are not filling. Now, the second um, word for, for look there in verse 2, look. So he saw her. Okay, no big deal. He noticed her. He saw her. He should have went, uh-oh. If it was a problem, he should have went and told one of his servants, hey, go tell that chick to get off her balcony and put her clothes on and not to do that on the roof. Or he went back in the house and gave her her privacy, whatever whatever he was going to do. But unfortunately, what does it say? The second word there is behold. She was very beautiful to behold. Well, there's only one way that David could have beheld her beauty. He broke his neck and he, his eyes got big and, you know, he had to figure out that, you know, she was beautiful. Now, to Bathsheba's credit, there, there's a couple of women in the Bible that even the even God, right, the Holy Spirit says of them, they're beautiful. When it, when when Isaac was looking for a wife and he found Rachel, God says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. God mentions she has a good body and that she's she's beautiful to look at. And so these are these are things that the Bible records. And so David notices the the beauty of Bathsheba. And unfortunately, he the glance there was the sin. The glance is what Jesus is dealing with. When Jesus says, do not look at a woman lustfully, and, and it doesn't fulfill. Now, just just kind of parenthetically here, you know, mo- we, we already talked about this. One of, one of the things that, that, that's going to be one of the downfalls or one of the sins in David's life is that David began to multiply wives to himself. So you're kind of, maybe what you're thinking are, you know, David had all kinds of women. On the very roof that he was standing on, staring at Bathsheba on the roof, 
underneath him was all kinds of women in his, in, in his house that were beautiful women as well. And you would think well, with all these women and all this ability to, you know, sexual intimacy that David had at his fingertips as a king, why, why, did, why, would, he, why, would, he, why would he need Bathsheba? Didn't, didn't the, the multiplying of wives fulfill the lust that David had in his life and his heart? No, it does exactly the opposite. All, all that, that lusting doesn't, doesn't quench lust. It creates more lust. And again, that's, that's why God prohibits us as men from staring at women, undressing them with our eyes, because it doesn't fulfill a lust. It creates more desire. It creates more lust that eventually you try to fulfill with, with um, what's the word? With um, perversion is the word I'm looking for. With perversion. And you become perverted and perverse. You know, you know um, one of the things that was most fascinating, um, I, I watched, I don't know if you guys seen it recently, but and I, I had to confess my sins, but I, I think I started with that one. And I don't know why, but the subject became so fascinating to me. I started watching a couple others. But it was these stories about serial killers. And the last one was a, was a now turn the tape off or something. Don't record this. but <laughs> And don't go home and do this, all right, if anything. But the, it was a Netflix series about Ted Bundy. And, and so what, what I didn't have any idea was that Ted Bundy was in Utah for a while. And some of his crimes were in Utah. I had no idea. Actually, Utah's the one that caught him first. What's that? In Tula? Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. But I knew he was in Murray was where. Well, anyways, anyways. So Ted Bundy, um, he says, and he says, I, I didn't do it because of this. I'm not using it as, as an excuse. But he said he, he developed a um, perverse desire for, for pornography in his life. And the pornography fed a desire that he had that he needed to fulfill that eventually led to violent crimes in his life. And he couldn't get enough. And the pornography that he was using, you know, it, it started with, you know, I don't even know how to describe it, light to, to very hardcore and, and different types of pornography. And then what he said was that 100% of the death row inmates that he was in contact with um, Every single one of them had an addiction to pornography. And so, you know, again, there's absolutely a connection. And again, pornography doesn't necessarily drive you to murder. I'm not saying that. But it definitely, what it does, again, it it feeds a lust that can't be fulfilled. It feeds a desire that, 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 that leaves you empty as men. And God doesn't prohibit it because he doesn't want you to enjoy life and enjoy those things. He prohibits it because it'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy the people you love the most. And so, you know, and, and, and again, in Ted Bundy's case, and in all cases, whatever type of, of perversion that you start with, it never ends there because it doesn't fulfill, and, it, and then you start getting worse and worse and more aggressive and more aggressive and different styles and types until, you you know, you've gone so far left and so perverse that it's, you know, mind-blowing. Does it blow your mind that some of the most most rich and famous people in the world have, have a desire to molest little boys? Men. How, how in the world, right, men? When you think of the idea of, of, of um, and again, please forgive me, we're talking candid here today, but the, the, the desire... The sexual drive to be fulfilled in a little boy as a man, how does that happen? 
completely disgusting, right? Like, how could you even, you know? But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perversion that grows and grows and grows. And for some of these guys, because, because um, women are so readily available and so easy that there's no more challenge, there's no more nothing, and, and it's not doing what it used to do. And so the perversion grows and grows and grows, and somehow, demonically, they end up with these, these, these perversions that are completely off the hook. But again, God wants to protect you from that. God wants to protect you. And, and pornography is, is a vile evil, and it's, and it's rampant in, in, in the church. You know, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle that men have. It's a real desire that goes back to Job that's something that we have to be on our guard for. It's something that we, we can't, um, you can't flirt with. Do you know that pornography is more addicting than heroin? And, and the, the, the psychological and emotional addiction to pornography is, is stronger than heroin? You know how many counseling sessions that I've done with um, couples who are, are getting a divorce? There was a one couple, beautiful, beautiful couple, um, in their 30s, and they hadn't, they hadn't had sex as a couple for six years. And I, I have no idea how she made it six years um, to stay, but she stayed. And then when she was done, she was done. But the reason why was because he would, he, he would wait for her to go to bed at night so that he could stay up and watch pornography on the computer. Beautiful young wife, but that's not what he wanted. He, he had grown such a perversion and such an, an, an addiction that it was, it was more desirable for him to let his beautiful flesh human wife go to bed without him so that he could stay up and watch pornography at night. Now, again, that's not normal, right? That's, that's an addiction. That's the power of perversion and of, of, of um, you know, when we let ourselves go that way. So we're, we, we're, uh, we're jamming tonight, you guys. We've got two verses done already. All right, so David sees her. He beholds her. He lusts. And in verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the women, and someone and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah, if you guys are interested, if you're having, uh, the way you guys have kids around here, if you need a good boy's name, I love the name Uriah. I think it's a cool name. He wasn't, what's not a Hebrew name though, and he wasn't a Hebrew, he was a Hittite. And God actually, you know, had, had uh, Hittites were part of the group. You remember as we went through the Old Testament, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Shizites, the Didites, the Flashlights, the Hittites. He was a part of that group that 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 joshua and the conquests of 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 moses and the children of israel coming out of israel that they were conquering they were living in the land but here we have a case of one of the hittites who becomes a a friend of david who lives near david who fights and serves in david's army so he was a he was an amazing guy the bible absolutely has nothing negative to say about uriah uriah was an amazing guy god wants us to remember him What's very fascinating and very cool is that as the Bible goes on and God begins to tell the story of Bathsheba, he, he doesn't call, he does and doesn't, but a lot of times he doesn't say Bathsheba. He calls, God calls her the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, so that we don't forget Uriah in this story that Uriah, I think is, I believe is one of God's heroes. And it says in verse four, then David sent messengers and they took her and she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she, and she returned to her house. That verse always trips me out a little bit. Because it's like, there's a, the, it's, 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 
doesn't make sense, right? She, it says because she was cleansed from her impurity. That's part of this thing in the law of Moses that, that a woman had to, um, it was forbidden in the law of Moses for men to sleep with their wives while they were on their period. In the law of Moses, they actually had to sleep in separate beds while the woman was on her period. So then when, she, when her time of purification and, and, and her period was done, then it was okay then for her to again sleep with her husband. So it's like she followed the law of Moses and her time of purification was completed so that she could go have an affair. <laughs> so, but, so she goes and, you know, real quickly, because I, I got to skip some stuff now because we just went on and on. But um, the, the thing about this, this particular thing for King David is I'm sure that first night with Bathsheba was exciting. I'm sure it was fun. I'm sure it was thrilling and all those other things, you know, because we, we don't, we don't, sin, sin is fun. And, and how can I say that? Why can I say that? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what Moses said. Moses said, sin is fun for a season. And every one of us understand that. You know, when, when you're involved in, in certain things, we don't do them because they're not fun. We do them because they're exciting. They're fun. But here's the lesson, that, that sin is fun for a season, the Bible says, and then there's a price to pay. I always say that anything that you derive joy and in your life that doesn't come from God or that comes from Satan or the plan of Satan, that um, there's an invoice at the end. That, 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 that Satan sends you a bill for that fun. And, and, and you have to pay it. And David is going to pay a tremendous price for this one night. You know, and, and I don't know how you men process life and, um, and process, you know, the desire to, to be true to your wife and, and to stay, you know. But, but for me, one of the things just on the outside, I've always just, you know, I could never understand why I would throw away everything that is so valuable to me, my wife, my kids, my family, for this one moment that's going to come and go like that. And you might enjoy it for a small season few moments in history and that fun comes with the hugest invoice that you've ever seen in your life it's going to cost you your wife it's going to cost you your kids it's going to cost you everything it's just not worth it on a practical side besides the fact that i don't want to dishonor god and on and on and on and on lots of things but that's always one of the processes that that, that david here not not only because of this moment is david going to murder uriah but there's even residual effects because David puts Uriah in the heat of a battle and backs up, and not only does Uriah die, but, but men all around fighting in King David's army, they die in that, in that battle, in that skirmish that David sets up, and so other innocent men die in David's sin, and sin is costly, and, and yeah, it's fun for a season, but the price and the invoice that Satan hands you at the end, you don't want to pay, and right, it says, um, and the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David, and she said, I am with child. So she got pregnant on that night, and David sent Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So in verse 6, David is as cool as the other side of the pillow, and he doesn't, he's, not too, he's not too worried. He says, oh, I got this. No worries. I'll just cover it up. He said, I'll just bring Uriah home. I'll have Uriah go um, sleep with his wife and then go back to war. And then when he gets home and, um, at the end of the war season, he finds out his wife's pregnant. He'll think the baby's his. He'll raise the baby as his own. Uriah will, uh, Bathsheba will never say nothing. He'll be none the wiser. And Uriah will, will raise my son as his own and our daughter and, and life will go on. No big deal. We got this. And when Uriah had come home, David asked, hey, how was Joab? How Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. 
And they had small talk and chat and asked about his general. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift and a gift of food from the king followed him. So David sent him with a little gift. David told him to wash his feet. Why did David tell him to wash his feet? Because you don't get in bed with your wife with dirty feet. So cleanliness. So he told him, go home, take a shower, get cleaned up, get freshened up, knowing that that was David's blessing and invite for him to sleep with his wife. And then the king sent him, you know, a gift to follow him down that night. He probably sent him some chocolates and a bottle of wine or something, you know, like some candles and, um, you know, sent him this, this care package down for, for Uriah. And then in verse 9, but Uriah slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, now Uriah's back, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Why did you not go and enjoy your wife and enjoy the evening? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab, the servant of my lord, are encamped in the, in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live, as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. And so, so Uriah is a man of integrity, and he says to David, he says, I'm, I, I'm not going to go in while my men, the ark of God, are, are fighting, and you know, who am I to go and enjoy my wife tonight while my men are sleeping in foxholes? And then David said to Uriah, wait here today and tomorrow, and I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David called him, and he, so David's at home kind of, you know, scheming, planning, probably starting to sweat a little bit now. Uh-oh, what am I going to do? So David finally, he takes him a day and a half, but he comes up with a plan. And David called him, and he ate, and he drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went and lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go into his house. So David says, I'll bring him back. I'll get him drunk. His inhibitions will be down. He'll definitely go home and uh, be with his wife tonight. And so, so now David's adding to his sins of deception and um, getting, getting Uriah drunk. And so Uriah, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately for David, right, Uriah has more integrity drunk than David had sober. And so Uriah stumbles home drunk after he can't, you know, spend a night with the king. And the king kept filling his glass and insisting that he, that he empty it. And Uriah gets to his house and he lays down on the porch and he goes to sleep. And in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that, they, that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. So David writes the death sentence of Uriah. He seals it with the king's signia, just like you see on TV and the movies, a wax signal, a little wax stamp. David rolls the letter up. He puts the wax stamp on it. Uriah obviously is a man of integrity. He doesn't peek. He doesn't read the letter. But he carries his own death sentence back to the general. He hands it to the general. The general rips the seal, and he opens it. If Uriah was still standing, there, something like, oh, you know, like, uh-oh, trying to, trying to hide his reaction when he saw what King David um, wanted. And then the men of the city came out, verse 17, and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So some of the people of David fell. 
So not only does, does Uriah die in this plan, but David has to kill other faithful men in his army in order to try to cover up his sin. But guess what? Guess even though the, David's plan is to kill Uriah and he thinks he's going to cover up his sin, there's somebody else who's, who's watching and knows what's going on. Who's that? Not sure? Waldo? The Lord sees what's going on. And so in verse 19, they charged, so then Joab, verse 18, sent, told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling David the matter of the war to the killing, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Don't you know how to fight? Don't you know the rules of war? Didn't you remember the, they'd know they would shoot from the wall? Don't you remember who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. So Joab sends this messenger, and he knows that as the messenger is rehearsing to David what happened, David's going to get upset for the tactic they used. And he says, when David starts getting mad that we lost men and the way that we approached this particular fight, just throw this little line in there, and, and, and uh, it'll help that Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the guy does that. Um, and, and then in verse 24 or 25, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against him in the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. So David is just continuing to go south in this whole story. And now he would have been upset. They lost men. And as soon as he tells him Uriah's dead, David's like, ping, oh, let's just be encouraged. And go tell Joab that everything is okay and life is good. And, you know, and David's acting holier than thou. And it says in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah, there's one of those times where God calls her the wife of Uriah, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. I wonder if David mourned. You know, I know David's heart. I know he's in a, not really necessarily in a, in a good place here in his actions, but maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I mean, it, ha- it had to have hurt his heart, right? Right? Like, and, and not only that, but the other men. And if it didn't hurt his heart today, we're going to see where it, it's going to break David's heart. And, and David's going to come to a place in his life where he's, he's really godly, sorrow he's really repentant of this whole action he's going to bring come to a place in his life where he's repentant and and again whether you whether you 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 think david deserves um you know some kind of the law and punishment and your your feeling about this is that well david really deserves god to 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 get him for this and god's not going to you know that that's that's the heart of god that's a decision for god and 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 what but there is consequences and what we'll get into next week is um that when when david does repent and and david's heart is broken he writes psalms 32 your homework read psalm 32 and psalm 51 it's what david records on this on this next chapter where we're headed and and he says search me O heart oh god it's always it's the psalm i quote every time we're we're ready to um, take communion where I'm asking you guys to search your heart and ask God if there's some kind of wickedness. Psalm 51 particularly, but the two Psalms that David wrote, kind of parallel Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 
um, at the time, we haven't got there yet. There's a year break between chapter 1 and chapter 2, I mean chapter 11 and chapter 12. I was going to do them both tonight. They really go together. We really need to do them together, but... Um, but we'll just have to we'll just have to get the, the the repentance part next time. So then, verse twenty seven. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and he and bore him a son. And the thing that don't forget this last verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God was watching, and this this secret plan of David is going to displease the Lord. God's going to deal with him. It's going to take a year. But eventually David is going to repent. And when he repents, God's going to honor his heart because he's truly repentant. There's, there's lots of different types of repentance, right? Not, that's not true. There's, there's, there are different types of repentance. And the one that God is interested in is, is the true repentance that, that you're broken, that you agree that it broke God's heart. You agree that it's sin, that it's, um, and, and that you turn. Repentance means to turn 180 degrees from your sin and not do it anymore. You know, the jails are full of people who are sorry they got caught, but not sorry for their actions. That's a different type, type of issue, and God won't honor that. You know, there was a case in the Bible that in repentance, in teaching what biblical repentance is or what a real broken, you know, David was, was kind of cornered the market for, for teaching and for, for explaining to us and helping us understand. But David says that God doesn't desire fat sacrifice. It's a broken and a contrite heart, oh God. These things you have desired, and that's what God wants in you and me. He wants us to be a people that have a broken and a contrite heart and that, and that our sin, whether, you know, it happens immediately or happens later that we get to a place in our life we get to a place in every situation that we truly um repent and ask god to forgive us and ask god to to make us whole and make us right you know um i i oftentimes i i, I even in prayer i ask god to help me repent help me get to a place where it's genuine in my heart because i i can i can apologize but it's not about apologizing it's 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 about changing it's about uh, you know hurting that i'm hurting the heart of god and i'm hurting the heart of god because he loves me and because my actions are hurting my own life and god doesn't want to see me hurt my own life so all right i'm almost preached next week's sermon tonight but next week is about repentance let's stand um it's 8 35 so we're just going to pray and let you guys go get your kids so i want to encourage you guys learn learn from the heart of david psalm 51 psalm 32 Maybe uh, just do a little homework tonight, tomorrow, sometime this week, and just um, spend some time understanding and seeing where David got to. It's kind of a spoiler alert, but that's eventually what's going to happen. Chapter 12 is a fascinating chapter of the way that David comes from the place of his sin to a place of, of genuine repentance in the heart of God. Now, here's what the Bible teaches you guys that I want, to, I, want to, I want to warn us about, that I want us to be careful about, that I think is one of the keys to Christian living. If you don't repent, if you don't get to a place in your heart where you, you find repentance and, and, you, and you see what repentance does, you know, you know what, you know, the Bi- I'm trying to be careful because I, I want to stop, but I can't stop. Give me two more minutes. The Bible, the Bible does teach spanking children as, as a discipline. The reason why the Bible does that, it says to spare the rod is to spoil a child. It's not a command. It says a father who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. But the reason why God does that and allows that is because what, what a spanking does for a son and what it does for you and I is it releases us from our conscience. We, we naturally feel bad about what we did, and, and we want to. So if, if, if there's no 
conclusion, just like my, like my heart as, as a, a brand new Christian who wanted God to do something to me so I could feel better that I, I was, you know, sinning against him. Now, if he would kill my dog or break my ankle, then I could feel a little bit better like he dealt with me. But it, what it would have done was it would have released me from this conscience that knows that I've done bad. And, and a proper spanking and a proper discipline in a proper way, God allows it because it, it, it clears the air. And now there's no more tension. It's over. It's behind us. Now we can hug and love and kiss and, and be father and son or whatever the situation is with that issue behind us rather than the child thinking about it all the time as he's sitting at the dinner table, as he's spending time with you, knowing, feeling bad and feeling guilty. It's over. It's behind you. So, so that what, what, what repentance does, what I want to encourage you, what I want to warn you for is that if you don't get to a place where, where you have a godly repentance in your life, then, then the Bible says every time you do that, it, it's, it's a hot iron that passes over your heart. And then, and then the danger is that, is that your heart becomes hard against those things and against those things that break God's heart and that really ultimately destroy your life. And so we never, we never want to let that. And one of the things that scares me to death is I don't want a hot iron to pass over my heart and become callous towards the things of God. So I'm constantly seeking God for real repentance reading Psalm 21, meditating on the heart of David that teaches repentance in these situations and, you know, asking God, God, help me get, if I can't, because I can't manufacture it, it has to be real. And when it comes and when it's real and I'm broken, man, oh, it feels so good. I'm released, man. I don't feel guilty anymore. I feel loved again. I feel, I feel close to God again. There's nothing between God and I. And, and I never want to let there get those things between God and I. So I want to come to that place in my life as a Christian that, that I have a godly repentance, that I learned that lesson from David's life, and I, and I really, really want to have a broken and a contrite spirit. Amen? Love you guys. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. God, we give you glory and honor. We pray, Lord, that tonight, God, and, and as, we, as we grow as Christians, Lord, that we would be a people who, who repent as King David did when we sin, God. That we would be a people that would be broken over our sins. And God, that we would never um, become hard because it, it's, it's a soft and moldable heart, God, that you want, that you can use. And Lord, what sin does, if, if we don't deal with it, is it, it hardens our hearts. It passes a hot iron over our hearts. Lord, there's no heart in this room tonight that, that has been hardened or is too hard that you can't soften it again. Lord, Lord David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. And so, God, we pray tonight that you would create in us a clean heart, God. God, that you would restore to us, God, the years the locusts have eaten. And, God, that we would learn this lesson of godly repentance. And it's, it's that, that man looks on the outside. But, God, we thank you that you look on the heart and that you are the great I am. And you meet the needs that we have as we serve you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.